hi, my name's Dr. Laws. I'm a scientist. I'm also autistic and have ADHD. And everybody in the class just suddenly looks. And I say, I've got my own business. I do science every day and I have fun. I've got two kids. I've sent experiments into space. This is not a deficit. Yes, daily tasks are more challenging. But once you understand how your brain works, you can work around that. And that's, again, why I say knowledge is power. Welcome to Multiple Hats, a show about STEM professionals who have gone off script and carved their own path beyond the tracks that were set for them. Science, technology, engineering, mathematics, medicine, how they found their why and what it takes to make it happen. Welcome back to Multiple Hats and Happy New Year 2024. I'm Angelique and on the show today, we're talking neurodivergence with Dr. Lorian Parker, a.k.a. Dr. Loz. Loyan is the founder of Science Play Kids, a company she founded for all brains and all learners' type to engage with science and learn. Did you know that 30 to 40% of the classroom is thought to be neurodivergent? And that's ADHD, autistic, dysgraphic, dyscalculia, anxiety, and others, you name it. I did not know that, and 30 to 40% is huge. But Dr. Lorian Parker, who is a scientist with a PhD in crystallography, is autistic with ADHD and is also the mother of a neurodivergent child. She says school is just not designed for any learners who does not feel this one mold of sitting down and listening for hours to someone lecturing us, that is sharing knowledge through verbalization in English. And I'm already hearing the kids saying, ah, boring. And when you think about it, it's insane that we think that we can expect every child to learn the same way and at the same pace. Anyway, here is to another founder who decided that someone could change this and went on to do just that. Now, Loyan both proposes educational workshop for kids, but also help teachers making their science teaching more inclusive and engaging. And that's certainly not all. Tune in for Lauren's Funder story, which come with the blessing of embracing a way of working, surrounding yourself with the people who can bridge your gaps, and very great lesson on tweaking your business model, because hers really evolved to an offering that she couldn't really have thought of before being buried into the delivery of her initial model first. So let's start with this conversation and let's start with where are you joining me from today? I'm in Melbourne, west side of Victoria. I live on the west side. I'm a proud Westie, which is pretty much perfect for what I do because west side, we miss out on a lot of stuff over here. So I think west side is where I need to be. Okay. So Lorian, or should I call you Dr. Loz? Um, is that your stage name in Science Workshop yes. with Science Play Kid? Yeah, it's my alter ego. I don't know how it happened, but it happened and it stuck. I think it's really important too, though. It's a big issue in in science, in the science field. A lot of females don't use their doctorate. They don't put doctor in front of their name, even though they've got that far in their qualifications, completed their PhD, and they just don't use it. So it needs to happen. If you've done it, if you've worked that hard, bloody take it. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to call you Dr. Laws from, from now sure. on. <laughs> so can you tell me about Science Play Kids? Can you give me the pitch? Sure. I was a scientist for a long time. I dropped off that because I noticed that science education just wasn't accessible for all learners. My kids are in primary school. And so I thought about where I could make the biggest difference. And so I started this business, Science Play Kids, 
to bring more science conversations to more people more often and ensure that they're accessible for all types of learners. And so that's sort of then translated across to supporting educators to do that. All right. So you give workshop for both educators and workshop for children. Yes. Okay. And the yep. workshop for children, how, what does it look like? That's just fun. I mean, the workshop for kids is my school holiday jam. It's where I started initially because I, as a parent with young kids, God, what are you going to do every day? You've got this kid at home. They're really interested. You have to keep them entertained. And I wished that there was somewhere I could take my child to do some sort of really fun but meaningful hands-on learning. My kids are neurodivergent like me. So you have to keep busy. Yeah, you've Mm. got to find things that engage. And then from that, it grew into where can I make the biggest impact, which is why I end up in schools and working with education groups. But I can't let go of the fun that I have in the school holidays. So every school holidays, there's hundreds and hundreds of kids. They come in with their parents and we just do wild stuff. And it's, it fills my bucket so much. We're going to be watching details of Science Play Kids. Before we do that, let's just rewind to the beginning. So you started with biochemistry and molecular biology and then did a PhD. What led you to choose biochemistry and molecular biology? I really liked science in high school. I think I had some great teachers at the school I went to, and I think that really helped. As somebody who is neurodivergent, autistic and ADHD, accessing information is really hard and the education system doesn't really allow for that so much. But I was lucky that the teachers at the school got me there. So then I jumped into uni, just did science because I didn't know where. I think I thought I wanted to be a vet or a pharmacist or something. And then just, you just, the beauty of tertiary education was you got to experience a bit of everything and have a taster and decide what worked. And I had this amazing lecturer in my third year who started teaching on this thing called x-ray crystallography. And it was fascinating. And I went up to him at the end of his three or four lectures and I said, hey, I've got to do honours in some field and what you're doing is really interesting to me. And he said, great, can you send through your, your marks and your track record? And I was like, well, the thing is, with uni, it's been great. There's a pub here, so I spent a lot of time there. But I promise you, I will engage in what I'm doing and I'll work really hard because I'm really interested. And he said, all right, come across, have a go, have a bit of an explore. And he took a chance on me and I just stayed. And I did honours in structural biology, which is biochemical, biochemistry. And then I did a PhD with him. And then I went overseas, but because he took a chance on me. And I think that's, the again, the biggest thing, the reason I'm doing what I do now is because I think we have this generalized view of if you're good at something, you're good at it academically. And so you have to be able to write about it. You have to be able to express your knowledge using words. And that wasn't me so much, but I could do the lab stuff and I could do the modeling and I could do, it was hands-on stuff. And mm. that's where I excelled. So somebody giving me a chance to do that and showcase my skills that way is why mm. I went into that and why I stayed there for so long. Yeah, I want to pause there because I think what you said is really important. And I come from a different perspective because my country works differently. So here I know you have to have a special grade to go in uni. Yeah. Somehow. In France, it doesn't work this way. And you've got to pass an exam, fine. But once you've passed that, you can go anywhere that you want in university. And what I like with that system is that when you are in high school, you're not that focused. It's like teenage years. You just don't get to, and what do you say, right? Perhaps I don't care about literature, but I love mathematics. Perhaps I don't care about mathematics, but I love literature. Whatever it is. But then when you go to university and you choose, 
actually what you want to do. You can say, well, I'm going to be focused. Okay, my track record is not as good, but now it's a choice. And because it's a choice, I'm going to do different. And so that changes everything. And so I love what you just said, because yes, it took a chance, but it took a chance with someone who was committed. And that makes a difference. And I think we should all have this choice. So not that I want to revolutionize the way Australia works with education. Oh, we have to. Now we have to. It's so bad. It's, I mean, and you're expected when you're 16, that's when you have to choose the subjects you're doing in year 11 and 12, right? And then it's how well you do in those that gives you the score that dictates what you can get into in university. So if you pick the wrong thing at 16 because you thought you knew but you didn't or you got a teacher that didn't help you or you whatever and your score at the end of year 12 just wasn't what it needed to be, that's it, right, for the rest of your life. It sucks. It's not appropriate for the age that we are. Yeah, no, absolutely. I actually went to an education summit recently and a lady was talking and I'll see if I can find her name, but she blew my mind. There's a couple of independent schools now specifically for school leavers where they don't get the mark. And so they're, they don't, I mean, they don't base the end of their high school on the mark. So you get to, at the end of year 12, write yourself sort of a portfolio showcasing what your skill set is. And then some universities are starting to accept those instead of this mark, which is spectacular. Like Melbourne Uni, Monash Uni are accepting students not reliant on their VCE score or whatever. It's probably not VCE anymore. I'm showing my age. It's shifting and it needs to shift. We have a big dropout in France because obviously people try and then they don't. And plus education is very low cost, unlike in Australia. If people try and then they don't work out, then they change. That's fine. This is what we're supposed to do as young minds, right? So, so I think yeah, there is a lot of improvement to be done there. You said you've done the crystallography and then you've done your PhD. Then you mm-hmm. went into a postdoc. So what was... Is that the natural next step or was that the dream job at that point? That's where you go. I think that's a really hard bit about being in academics, especially in science-based research. Once you do your PhD, you get to the end of that five years and you, you have to do a postdoc or change careers or become a lab tech. It gets really competitive. And I think that's another reason why I tapped out after a few more years is it's just not enough money for science research in Australia. Not enough opportunity. I was sitting in a lab with six people my age. We're all competing for the same pot of money. And one of us might get it or none of us will get it. And you have this thing hanging over your head of you've got two years to get this money. And if you don't get that money, that's the end of your job. And it's horrible. It's really horrible. I went to Japan to do my postdoc. And that was an excellent four years. Okay. Where Japan? Where? Why not? It's a good answer. <laughs> I wanted to go to Europe and looked up some people that were doing the research that I was interested in. And there wasn't quite anyone. And I had to go to a conference in in Japan anyway. And I went to the conference and fell in love with the place and just came back and said, I'm going to find a professor over there that's doing what I'm doing. And I did. And I went over and I had an interview and I said, you've got to give me this job. I love it. I promise I'll do this great stuff, you guys. And I talked to them even in the day and they didn't, they just... Again, they work very differently over there. They have separate groups that do separate stuff. And I was like, why aren't you guys collaborating? Why isn't this structural biology people collaborating with the computational people? And at the end of that, he just said, this is great. If you can come and bring that idea into our lab. And I planned to go, my postdoc was for two years there, but we stayed for four. And that's just what I did. I mashed the teams together. I was like, you guys, there's so much opportunity for collaboration here. And that's what we do in Australia quite well within our institutes is collaborate together. Good. Yeah, it was good. It was great. All right, awesome. So then four years instead of two, and then you come back to Australia. 
and that's the end of academia? Pretty much. Had kids. So pretty much. So is that why you did not continue with academia? Yes, it's very hard to continue at that level. So that's post, post postdoc. You need to commit. You need to put in a lot of time to be successful in that space. Again, because you're the level up in competitiveness and working part-time with young children just doesn't work so well. Some people can do it, but they have to put in a lot. You give up a lot and I wasn't willing to give up that much at home. Do you think women have to give up more than men in that? Absolutely. So you think if you hadn't been a man, you would have continued in academia? Yeah, because I wouldn't have had to do the night wake-ups and feeding the kids. I know there are people that do it. I have so many friends where the female's the breadwinner and the guy stays home and gets up and feeds the baby at night. And I, there are, I have a lot of friends that do that, but that, that wasn't my home situation. And I didn't want to change that, but I didn't want to give up being a parent in that first year mm. to pursue the academic career. And so then after that, you didn't want to go back to academia. Did you consider corporate jobs or was that not appealing to you? Now, I wanted to stay in science. I love science communication. I think that's why um, part of what I did when I was at a PhD in postdoc, I managed to access a lot of awards and stuff because I did do a lot of science communication and stepped out in those roles and I enjoyed it. And so then that was like, okay, so how can I do what I love? How can I work in a space that I think requires support and how can I keep doing science communication? And so I made my own job. So hang on. You're saying that you excelled in science communication. I hear that. But initially you told me that you were a doer and that talking about it wasn't you. How did that evolve? How did you bridge that gap? Nice question. I think it depends what I'm talking about. So stand, English was my worst subject at school by far. I think because as a neurodivergent person, when you are asked to express your knowledge about something that you are not 100% confident about, there is a lot of doubt that comes into play there. And I feel like also in the academic space, I don't know, I don't know how everyone else experiences it, but standing up in front of a room full of academics that are there, it felt anyway, to shoot you down, became a very horrible place. But then once I was around peers and people that wanted to talk about sharing science as opposed to this is my, these are my results and well, have you considered this and that and that's wrong because this study shows that. Like if you move away from that and talk about the love of science and where science can take you and what science in, like a more general view of science, mm-hmm. I could chew your ear off about that because that's a space I'm comfortable in. And I think maybe that's it, working out what space I was comfortable in then I can do it. That's a thing. That's a thing with, you've got to find where you fit. Well, nurture and nature, eh? both really. (laughs) So interesting. Yeah, great. So you describe yourself as a steminist, a scientist, neurodivergent, educator, and a parent. So is your business Science by Kids the result of you identifying with all this? And that's a little bit of your Venn diagram where all these attributes meets, or is it rather the other way and you found yourself while instructing science play kids? No, I think the first one, but I feel like I have fleshed out a niche in this space. And over the eight years of having science play kids, my direction has shifted a little bit because I have found out more about myself and because I have worked out where my strengths are. And I think that's where it's taken it. 
So take me for a little bit more how you came about that business idea. First thing, did you always, once you worked that you didn't want to continue in academia or in corporate, did starting a business was obvious to you as in the idea and you had that vision already and wanted to get it out? Or how did you really start envisioning a business? I think I had no idea what starting a business was. I think that was the biggest problem, actually. Yeah, yeah, cool. There's no job that I want to do that already exists, so I'll make my own job. And obviously that becomes my business. And I think I maybe not understanding the difference between a hobby and a business. I think reflecting the business part has been the hardest bit ever because that means I'm also a finance person, an admin person, an HR person. I have to work on business plans, all this stuff that's way outside my scope. Multiple hats. Oh my God, way too many. So I think I just thought I was creating my own job for myself and then further along it went and it had its own trajectory. Like I couldn't keep up and it it just kept going. So I knew it was working. I knew I loved it, but I didn't know how to stop it once it started. And I don't think I even understood how to direct it. But the further in I got, the more I loved it, but the harder the business side got. Yeah, well, I guess this is where you start getting other people in, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Before we go into that little nitty-gritty details, I've heard you saying that you're neurodivergent and your children are neurodivergent. So let's talk a little bit about that. Can you tell me more about this, what it means to you, and how it plays out, particularly for you in your education and in your path as an entrepreneur? Yes, I can. I have recently been acknowledged, diagnosed, diagnosed, we say, well before being diagnosed, I knew that my brain works a little bit differently. And I think once I had my kid, my youngest ones, especially, there was a lot of research because he, he had a lot of characteristics that made me question how his brain worked and how he navigated the world. And so that led me down the rabbit hole of researching this stuff. This was seven years ago. What's that for you? Thinking? Uh, like he would have been one and we'd put him down on the grass and he'd pull his feet up and not let the grass touch his feet. And if we were at the beach when he was one or two, he wouldn't touch the sand and didn't like loud noises, all the things that now I'm just like, yeah, cool, dude. <laughs> You're autistic. and mm, Okay, so sensory. And now later, I mean, he's eight now, so can communicate, but understanding that changing in plans really affect him, expectations. There's so many things. But at the start, I went down that path and I recognised I have all of these traits. This is how I live my life. Society has a big problem with labels, and I think that in some cases that's fair enough. But identifying as autistic and ADHD has allowed me to validate the way I navigate my world. And I do not see it as a deficit whatsoever. It has been the biggest game changer for me and understanding how I do everything that I do. And it's allowed me to own the way I approach things and be confident and happy in understanding how I do everything. But it's also allowed me to say, I am not good at this and there are reasons for that. So that's why now I have staff that do those things for me, mm. right? I am not an organized person. I am chaos everywhere I go. So I have an organizer who is a professional organizer who is basically my PA now. Right. The thing is now I understand my neurodivergent brain. I know that if I keep hitting my head against a wall saying, I am going to get better at this, I am going to get better at this. 
actually, you're not because this is the way your brain works. So get someone else to do it for you. Yeah, beautiful. Look, I'm hearing that's really important for neurodivergent people, but even for non-neurodivergent people. Absolutely. Sometimes you go and you get coached and get mentored and they say, okay, you've got this gap, you've got to bridge that gap. Yeah. But the reality is you want to get better at your strength and not trying to be slightly less mediocre at your weakness. Unless it's if you want to be president and you don't know anything about politics, perhaps you need to bridge that gap. But otherwise, there's no point, right? So I think it applies to everyone, but I hear clearly from what you're saying, that for neurodivergent people, rather than, yeah, hitting your head against the wall, just embrace it, right? Yeah. And I think, too, if we can start that narrative in school, the education system really funnels us into this is the way we all should be. This We should all be good at literacy. We should all be good at mathematics. We all need to do this. And we all need to come out the other end with this exactly the same skill set. Mm. I don't understand why, right? Like. My business is successful now because I know what I'm good at and I have found three or four other people that are good at the things that I'm not. And together as a team, we can do anything, but it's because we can identify where our strengths are. So when I'm in a classroom, I teach the class and I say, this thing you might find a little bit challenging, but someone next to you might be able to give you a hand, right? As scientists, we're collaborators. And the idea is that we all bring something to the table. We all have strengths and they don't need to be the same because if they were, we wouldn't come up with anything new, right? You need that, those different brains. You need everybody to come from a different perspective to have all the ideas. Creativity doesn't exist without that diversity of input. Yeah, uniqueness. What do you want to say to parents or to people who perhaps haven't been diagnosed but knows that there is something neurodivergent about them who are perhaps in academic failure? Oh, wow. Well, first, I just think even if you haven't been diagnosed, knowledge is power, right? And I'm not saying you need to be diagnosed. I reckon even if you don't go down the path, but you know that you navigate the world a little bit differently, that you are neurodivergent, understanding that will allow you to make the accommodations that you need to be successful where you do. And so school is not designed for neurodivergent learners. And we reckon 30 or 40% of every classroom is neurodivergent. That is huge, right? 40%? Yeah, I'm talking about autistic, ADHD, dysgraphic, dyslexia, dyscalculia, anxiety, like the list, it's huge. Mm. And classrooms are not designed for all learners to thrive. So if you didn't thrive in the classroom and didn't achieve the academic success, that doesn't mean that you don't have the knowledge. That doesn't mean that you don't have the skills. It just means that you weren't given the opportunity to access those. And if you can understand that and work out how you can access them and how you need to, even now as adults in in workplace settings, advocate for yourself. Yeah, this does not work for me. I am better when I do this. Can I please have access to that kind of flexibility? And if you can show how much more productive you are, how much more successful you are in that space, I don't understand why employers wouldn't say yes. So my whole team, they start when they need to start, they leave when they need to leave, they work where they need to work from, and we get stuff done. Yeah. Mm-mm. Yeah, that comes from a place of understanding, though. 100%. Because you implement all this because you know with the benefit of it, but an employer who is not aware might just think, oh, why do you need all this? I guess it's changing. We bring in more and more awareness. So, But what I hear from you is advocate for yourself and ask for the change. Don't wait until someone does it for you. And have the conversation. See, this is it. Like the generation that's coming through school now, these are conversations that they're having. So when they're the bosses, they will 
be coming from a place of understanding, right? Because this will be the norm, right? These conversations should be happening all the time. And difference and diversity mm. sh- should just be part of it. There will be no norm, yeah? But our yeah. generations, yeah. we're staffed, right? We've come from so much broken generation before and a generation before. Yeah. One step at a time, each generation gets their thing better, hopefully. I hope we don't regress too much. Okay, so in your workshop and your education for both children but also educator, you do multisensory education workshop. What does it look like? It just means that whenever we're exploring something, whenever I'm trying to share knowledge that I have with anybody else, there are a variety of ways of interacting with that information. So we always have visuals. Again, I learn by doing. So I think, especially in Australia, we rely on, yes, spoken or written English to transfer knowledge. And I think that it's changing that. So making sure that we can do the thing to understand the concept. We can see the thing to understand the concept. As soon as you add an experience around something you're trying to explore, some knowledge you're trying to share, the brain has more, there's more likelihood that it can interact with what it is, depending on if you've got 20 different brains in a room and they can do it and they can see it and they can hear it and they can smell it and they can tinker with it and really explore around it. Each person will take it in their way. And I think that then everyone has access to the information and that means that they can use that later, apply it later because they've been able to take it in. Whereas if you're just sitting in front of people that are talking. Yeah, yeah, quite boring. Okay, so if I close my eye and I'm trying to work into your workshop, what do I see? What do I touch? What do I smell? Oh, God, depends. That's a huge question. Depends what we're exploring. Last week, we were exploring forces. And so that's an abstract concept, yeah? A lot of forces you can't see. Gravity, you can't see. Magnetic force. But it's then using toys and materials and things that kids interact with to have the conversations around those topics. So we had giant, we had marble runs. We made cars and we had ramps. And so there's kids, there's ramps on every table and they're building little cars out of cardboard and they're adjusting the height of the ramp and the cars are going faster and there's a little bit of squealing, a lot of excitement. They're all dressed in lab coats, really immersing in the experience and exploring their own way. One kid over there will be facing away from everybody else and doing it their own with a book and there'll be six kids that are they put two or three ramps together and they're making it even bigger, but it's just it's providing a space and an environment for everybody to interact the way they need to. And their kids just pick where they want to look at. Yep. Once they're given the freedom, like at the start of every class, teachers or kids or whatever, the start of any workshop, anything I do, this is a space for you to explore how you want to explore because your brain is different from mine and there's no point in me telling you how to explore it because you're you, yeah? And it is mind-blowing because I make the parents stay if they're with kids for the kids' workshops because I want the parents to see what kind of learners their children are so that they can understand more about their kids. And the parents always come up at the end and say, wow, so-and-so has never engaged in this kind of activity before, this kind of social setting where there's so many kids in a room. Usually that's overwhelming, but they were just so into it or you know, usually we have trouble sharing and there's a lot of disruptive behavior, but it didn't happen. And I said, it's because, because I empowered them. I gave them permission to be them without the, Mm. this is the way this should be done. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That was my next question. How parents do react? Because that would be life-changing for them. Amazing. 
so many parents. And that's why I still do the school holiday stuff because guaranteed every single session, two or three parents come up to me and just say, thank you so much. Thank you so much for that opportunity. Thank you so much for sharing that you are autistic and have ADHD and are a scientist. Thank you so much for being a visible person and an entrepreneur. And that's it. I say, you know, my brain is this way. Hi, my name's Dr. Laws. I'm a scientist. I'm also autistic and have ADHD. And everybody in the class just suddenly looks and I say, I've got my own business. I do science every day and I have fun. I've got two kids. I've sent experiments into space. This is not a deficit. Yes, daily tasks are more challenging, but once you understand how your brain works, you can work around that. And that's, again, why I say knowledge is power. Once you understand who you are. Thank you for being public because that's the thing, right? You don't want parents to think, oh, this is it. Now my kid is autistic or ADHD. And no. They are way for, for them to go. Acknowledging that there are more challenges. Absolutely. There is lots of way forward. So. A hundred percent. Right. Science play kids. People remember. Come. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You operate only in Melbourne or? Yeah, yeah. It's got a um, warehouse in the western suburbs out in Altona. We go to all the schools. We work with all the schools. And I think that's the schools that we're partnering with now, working with already feedback from parents from those schools and teachers from those schools is that the kids are just engaging more and um, we need them to feel ownership and pride over what they're doing. The education system doesn't currently a lot of the time, and I'm generalizing a heap. There are some amazing schools and amazing teachers out there, but as a general, it just is not set up to make you feel successful as a person and as a learner. If you can't do it the way that it, the path that is set, this is the way we do it. Yeah, the mould. Yes, the mould. Do you have plan to expand across Australia? Love to. Now we've started to do some of our professional development for educator workshops online. We are doing Australia-wide. So I think that's a big step. And I think the hands-on bit's a little bit hard to do, but it's the training to be able to do that yourself in your own places. The workshops, I don't think franchising is in my scope. It's just, it's a big ask. There is a lot involved in the hands-on workshops and it's taken me eight years to get to that. And you can't say to someone, hey, buy into this. It'll take you eight years to get to that. Mm. But definitely the education stuff. One of the programs I just developed for a group out in Phillip Island called Free 3D Hands, they print assistive devices. They mostly print limbs for people with limb difference. They use their 3D printers. And they came to me and they said, hey, We'd like an education program because all the schools ask us to come out and do incursions and we just don't have the capacity. So we built a program where there's videos and worksheets and stuff online so everyone can access. That's gone international. So, wow, that's great. That's what advance in technology and innovation has allowed us to do. We can put stuff on the internet so anyone can access it anywhere. And it's good that, you know, you have your own boundaries of what you want to undertake now or perhaps later yep. and things like that. But um, that big thing, I hear you where you're saying it's hard to get someone as a franchise. But if you get someone, I want to quote Rachel Service here, who is a thought leader and has her own business called Happiness Concierge. She kind of like advocate that the way that she gets to have the same experience, even when she doesn't deliver the workshops that she does, is because she picks people who have the same belief and the same core belief. And therefore, they kind of deliver in the same way. I understand with yours, you have to come from a place of experience. But that could be something whenever you're ready <laughs> that you could actually train other people and it wouldn't take them eight years. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Finding the right person, though. 
All right. So once you've got that idea and you found yourself, let's distill it for aspiring entrepreneurs. How do you get from something in your head to something in your hand? How did you fledge it further? And what was your very first step? I didn't. I jumped in the deep end. I just jumped straight in. And I'm not sure that I would recommend that. This, I would say, flesh it out a lot more. But what was the first thing? How did you jump? What does it look like? This deep end that you jumped in, how did it look like? I quit my job and I asked a bunch of friends to come to a workshop and I found a small studio and I hired that and I just started there. And they came with their kids. So that was your pilot? That was my pilot. Okay. Do you just sit down and think, okay, I'm going to do that? That workshop was it very well fleshed out or you just figured out as you went, wing it? No, it was. It was. It was. I would have been somebody that needs to get things pretty right. And that's, again, that's, I think that's my journey over the last eight years has, has allowed me to say mistakes are part of the growing process. But I think, again, our generation, you don't make mistakes. And this is another thing I try and do with the kids is mistakes are part of progress. Yeah, that's, you get to the best place because of all those mistakes. And it was as thought out as I could without having any experience. That's the thing. It's I've never uh-uh. done teaching before. I'd never worked with kids before. I'd never had a business before. I'd never hired a space before. Like I really jumped in completely. Okay. So day one, you find a spot, you think you've write a little plan for this workshop. How many people turned up to this workshop that you invited? 15 parents and their kids. It was great. That is a pretty good start. I reckon I spent a a few months finding the space and working out what I was going to do. And then I printed our little form, give me all your feedback. What would you change? Would you come again? How much would you pay? What was the workshop like, that first workshop? A little bit crazy. Way harder than I had anticipated. I don't know what I expected. Chaotic. I walked away very unsatisfied but also talked myself through all the things and the good feedback. So I tried again and then again, and the same people kept coming back. So I knew I was onto something good and then it built and mm-hmm. then I was running them four days a week. Was that for free initially? No. Okay. So you, your first pilot was already paid? Oh no, the very first one I think was free. And then I said, I don't know, 10 bucks a kid. Okay. Okay. So yeah, very reasonable initially. And we definitely weren't making any money off that. No way. I imagine. Okay. Well, we'll start at $10 price point about eight years ago, which let's say now it's 20. How many workshops did you do like this to get to something that you could actually really price as a professional service? Six months. And that first price point came from the feedback or did you, what did you do? Market research? Yes, I did market research. And I did, and I based on the feedback, but that's, I think this is where I got stuck. And I think this is why eventually I moved away from my primary business model being expecting parents to pay and that being where I was going to make my business successful. Because, I mean, as a parent, and we're talking during the week, right? Lots of kids are at school. So there was a lot of homeschool families and they have more than two kids often. That again, a huge generalization. You can't say, please come in for an hour with your four kids and it's going to cost you 120 bucks. That's just not reasonable. So I think I did it for as long as I could and I wouldn't change any of it because I got, I reckon it was 12 months, 
12 months or 18 months. Mm -hmm. That experience of understanding exactly what I needed and where the market was and how kids responded and I got the insight into different learners and it was, yeah, I reckon 18 months of experimentation to understand what this could be. Yeah. Mm. So in the end, that's one 18 months of subsidized market research. Let's call it this way. Yeah, so not, not that bad in the end. You quit your job, you said, so no backup on this one. And you're doing something that is not sustainable for about 18 months. A lot of pressure. Bless my husband. I was very lucky that my husband could support us through that, but it caused a lot of tension. Did you have to do a lot of sacrifice to, to get through that 18 months? Yes, so much, so much. And dragging my whole family through that sacrifice. I think that's the really hard bit is because you're not contributing financially. Like what? Oh, just doing less mm -hmm. of all the things and just every month being like, okay, I think I've got an idea. I think this can work moving forward and just constantly trying to convince my husband. And he was so supportive. So I am so grateful that he just let me keep pushing it and pushing it until I found the right model. Did you have a boundary, like a stop, a stop milestone that you would say, okay, I'm, I'm not pushing forward anymore or? Yes, yes. And that was, I think, every three or four months we had a conversation of, okay, if, if in six months this is not reached, then that's when we call it quits and we find something else. And so, you know, at six months that was reached, okay, so where is the next thing that we can go to if in six months we're not here? With a long-term goal of being like, okay, if this doesn't work in two years, that's it. You can't keep doing that. Mm, for someone who is not very organized, that's a pretty good um, stage gate scenario. Uh, I think that was more enforced by the organized people around me than me. I'm just a, let's keep trying, let's keep trying, let's keep trying. So who, your husband's supportive, great. Who else was supportive and who, who were your detractors? I think reality was my detractor. Um, there's some really great councils around, offer some really great services. There are business people and business mentors that you can access that will talk you through things. A friend of mine, Kirsty Costa, is an absolute legend. She works at Zuzvik and she often let me sit down and have a chat with her about stuff. And she was really good at helping me think bigger picture and direction. And she's in education. So she played devil's advocate for some of the conversations that we had. She was incredible. I have some other amazing women I talked to that kept me passionate, like Jen Martin, who's the head of science comms or started the science comms course at Melbourne Uni. And um, Misty Jenkins, who's a professor at she's the Olivia Newton Cancer Centre now in Melbourne. She's at High, And these are just people that I would just, if I questioned my passion, I would chat to them and they would say, you're in the right space for you. And this is so important. Yeah. And I had some great staffs. So all those are the supporter. Yeah. Yeah. Mostly all supporters. Yeah. Reality was just a bank balance was there. So you've got no one in your surrounded that say, Lorian, really just get a job. No. Nah. Awesome. I love that. Yeah. Crazy, huh? No, I mean, it's great. Perhaps you surrounded yourself the right way, right? Yeah. The staff, the people that worked with me back in the start, man, like we just, it was hard. It was really hard. And they just kept coming back. They just kept helping. And I think that all of that got me through. And I think now the last two or three years, just having really good people on my team. Yeah. Mm. So how do you work best? Cheerleaders or tough love? Bit of both. As an ADHD, a criticism is really hard for me. 
people with ADHD take criticism like a knife in the heart. So tough love, not necessarily great. Logical conversations okay. and directed conversations is great. And I think too, like my inner critic is intense. So I do the tough love stuff myself. I am really internally critical. And that's something I've had to learn to be kinder to myself around. Just looking at the bank balance and seeing that, like that's enough to be like, all right, God, yeah, okay. We're failing at this. What can we change? How can we rethink this? Who can we talk to? But the cheerleaders helped. More than tough love then. And just community, man. Just that every time a parent came up and said, this is game changing for us. Just that was like, okay, I'm on the right track. This is a thing that needs to happen and I'm doing it right. I just have to work out what that looks like. So am I correct in saying that you were able to evolve by picking up the right thing that were having great feedback and echo rather than hearing what wasn't? You know, rather than saying, okay, well, this has worked well, this hasn't worked well, you just looked at, okay, all of this has worked well and just forget about the thing that didn't work well? Oh, no, definitely filter out. Sorry, definitely filter out the things that don't work well. That was a constant. I had to do that. So you face them? Yeah, of course. You did have to face them? Yeah, of course. But not through tough love, through just looking at the balance. Just looking at the balance, looking at the stuff. You know, if we if, if take a gamble, all right, I'm going to try and do this and book it in on this thing. And then just two weeks out being like, oh, there's hardly any bookings. What have I done? And then sit back and go, this is school holiday, you know, like, or this is this, or you haven't done enough marketing for this. Nutting mm. it around. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've made a lot of mistakes. What was the biggest flop? Talking about failure, you know, we never talk about failure. So I like to talk about failure. Um, and you've said, you know, you teach the kids to have mistakes. So what was your bigger flop? I see going into it without knowing what I was going to, without understanding what a business truly was, I think was, it's been incredibly hard. The hardest years of my life, the last eight years. But I suppose having kids at the same time probably adds to that. It's hard to dissect which is what and what, what it's all from. But what was the alternative, you know, take a business course and start your business four years after? I don't see that as an alternative. No, I didn't either. So that was it. I'm kind of an all or, all or nothing. Crash course. Yep. So jump in and give it a shot. Yeah. Was there a workshop that really was really like, like okay, this one, not, not going to happen twice? Yeah. I went to a private school early on, like in my second or third year and said, I can teach you guys science. Let me do a PD to the teachers. And that was the first time standing in front of teachers properly. And I was so intimidated and I had such an imposter syndrome and my ADHD kicked in and I was so dysregulated. I reckon I just talked triple for an hour and I left that and I was like, I will never do that again. I'm gonna, and then it took me two years to start running workshop, educator workshops again. That was two years of going into schools, I don't know, three or four days a week and talking to teachers and really being in the classroom and seeing where all those struggles were and why educators find science, teaching science intimidating and challenging and inaccessible and, and really understanding that. So you observe the teacher in the classroom? Yeah, yeah. So now I'm, yeah, now I reckon I've done six years where I've been in, I don't know, 600, 700 classrooms. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. Now I know what I'm talking about. So it's a lot of going into defining your value proposition and that's been evolving, I'm hearing, constantly. 100%. Beautiful. So I remember a few times people saying, hey, let's do a five-year plan, let's do a five-year plan. And probably every year for the first couple of years doing that. And then looking back, nothing, I know a year. I'm not doing anything like what, what I would 
my five-year plan put me in. I'm like, am I going to be alive in five years? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Six-month plans is what I do now. Six months, 12 max. And let's do you, you have your plan and then COVID happens. Yeah, right. <laughs> did you have to pivot a lot with COVID? Yeah, because I, all I did was in-person workshops. With kids, so yeah. No, and yeah, in school. Mm, yep, yep. So what happens? How did you pivot and how fast did you pivot? I started making online resources pretty much two weeks in. Two weeks in. Quick pivot. Yep. Quick. Well, I had to. Where else was I going to get money for two years? Uh, some people took a lot longer, so <laughs> good on you. <laughs> I know. Gave it a shot. Um, and it was good. People signed up. Lots of people signed up. But I, it was too hard. It got too hard for me to every single week come up with a new video, produce it, shoot it, produce it, pop it up with the kids at home all day, every day. Is it harder than actually producing the workshop in person? Yes. It is. Okay. Yes. Much harder. Because you have to make all the, you know, all the recordings good, all the visuals, all the stuff, put it together, add the sounds, add the music. It's less forgiving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then get people to pay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand. So that lasted, I think, six months. Okay, yeah. And then I was quite lucky because of the business I was running. I um, got government support for a bit of COVID. So that, that helped. So... Let's talk a little bit about finance there. You said that you quit your job and your husband supported you and you had like this stage gate each time for that. And then you said that's about 18 months before you got to sustainability. How long do you think before you got to, let's say, what you would have earned if you would have taken a job in academia after your four-year postdoc, an equivalent of that, matching your other career possibility, you know? I think the challenge in that is, Every time I got close to that, I added another staff member. So now there's four or five of us plus. I've got facilitators that run lots of things for me. So I think still I'm only just scraping that, but the trajectory keeps going up and we're getting recognition from a lot of places. Yeah, I just keep adding staff because I want to, I feel like, yes, the builds in that successful, financially successful business is important. But again, I need to build something that I want to do. And if it gets really, really hard and there's too much pressure, it'll take the joy out of it. And so if I get to a point where I can put someone else on to take one of the big, heavy loads off me, then I can spend that time developing further to then expand more. So when did you start having your first stuff? Near the start. How long? Um, and then, so during COVID, I think it kind of all turned a little bit, it all just disappeared back to just me. But I had my graphics designer and she's been consistent. So she was from then and she's still now. And she's, I don't know, three days a week. She just creates visual and graphic content for everything. And without her, it wouldn't be what it is. And then I reckon... Two years ago, uh, another person came on and just started, she just came in and she's a friend, started talking to me one day while I was in the warehouse and she's like, this chaos, this is chaos everywhere. How can you do anything? <laughs> and I'm like, I can't really actually. It's all very overwhelming for me, but I don't have the time to organize it. And she's like, I'll help you. And then the other friend who is a professional organizer who started helping me at home because I just couldn't keep up with everything, she came back and she's like, whoa you need some systems in place here if you want to keep moving forward. So those two have been so valuable. Right. So you didn't go out and advertise the job? No. You, you had like those people who came to you? Yeah. 
Yeah. How beautiful. Yeah, I love it. The community, as you say. Yes, absolutely. But in paid capacity, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, beautiful. It's interesting because like there's like some friends of mine who do amazing things and sometimes I'm like, oh, I'd like to be involved, but I'm like so afraid of disappointing them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't even go there. But when it's a friend, I'm like, and if I, if I screwed it up. It's really hard. It is really hard. And I think that's the biggest thing. Like the four of us together are extremely strong, but that's because we're all friends. It's challenging to manage that, yeah, because we have to look out for each other as well as getting the job done. And I really struggle being a boss to these guys. And I think that that would be the next step forward is in the next bit to get somebody that did the HR stuff because just managing people interactions is really challenging. And I want them to have every success, but I need to have success so that I can keep having them in to do the success. And they've got so many great ideas and they want to do stuff, but it's restrained by budget. So Again, we have to grow in capacity for that and then they can start having a bit more flexibility in the things that they choose to work on. So how do you understand this catch-22 issue when you start a business? So you're thinking, I've got to see if it works and I start for mm-hmm. 18 months or, or whatever. But then there's this moment where you're like, well, I need to invest mm-hmm. in it or I need more people to help me mm-hmm. being successful. But I don't want to do that until I can actually have an idea that is actually have legs. How do you get out of this cycle and take the cut and say, okay, well, now, even though I'm not sure it's going to be successful, I'm going to put someone in and, and all these resources. I think you just have to have the boundaries. Like I always said, I can use the money that comes in, but I can't ever take the money out of the home money. So that was the thing with the business. I'm never investing anything in that we already have. I can only put in what comes in from the business in order to grow it. And as soon as I was going to take from our our life, you know, as soon as he was coming out of our account, that was where I just said, no, it's not going to happen. So it was as long as I can keep on that for a little while, I will take the risks and try as long as I don't dip into that because then it's not just about me anymore. That's, I mean, and I was dragging my family already through a lot. But I don't know. I I think you just have to be the right person. That's so many people start businesses and stop. Yeah, because it's full on. Yeah, most most people actually fail in, in small businesses. So so good on you for getting eight years of that. Thank you. Yeah, I'm very lucky. So, okay, so that's about the finance and the profitability of it. And how did you find the first client? So you've done the workshop with parents. And then from there, and even in the school, how did you find those first? And how did you grow it further? Oh, I started social media. So I think that I started my Instagram and my Facebook. And for the first three or four years that was it like I I've not I've never spent money on marketing and that's our next step too later in this year yeah it's all been through for me social media or Facebook right Instagram I had followers but they're further away so they weren't my direct customers um but Facebook so you know I'd put a post out saying we've got workshops this school holidays there are 300 spots and within a week I'd sell out 300 spots sell out within a week yep. at the beginning of the business, like, you know, within those 18 months. No, that's that's like four years in. Okay, four years in. Yes, but that was what it was. It was people started following. Right, right. There are some pretty tight networks. Like if one person came to my session that was part of a homeschool community, they would tell everybody else in their little community and they all have their own social media accounts. So that would be like, hey, there's this really cool thing that I did. If your kids are doing some science, come across to these workshops and so then suddenly there was 10 homeschool families in one session and then there was so many that I actually had to allocate two days just for homeschool families or home educators yeah and it was amazing so that's what we did 
you know, my Tuesdays and my Thursdays were always these this same bunch of families that came every single fortnight or every single week, depending which one it was. And some of them still come to classes now, right? So the little sibling has come all the way through. There are there are people that come to my that just came to my workshops now that have been coming for seven years. Oh wow, awesome! Yeah, it's really good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Does there something different each time that they can still get engaged? Absolutely. So about perfectionism, and perhaps not perfectionism, but you said I'm someone who needs to get things right when you start first your workshop, and yet you've been doing lots mm. of experimentation, so definitely able to take the risk. Were people forgiving on your initial hiccups or things that weren't working well in the workshop? You know, perhaps things that you were like, oh, this is not really good. Yeah, I don't think they noticed. They didn't. I don't think, I mean, any feedback might have been it was a little bit too busy or that, you know, there was too many people. And that was a huge one too. Yeah, you know, because a lot of the kids that came when you were divergent, there's a lot of overwhelm. And so they want smaller class sizes. And I would always say, I'm doing, you know, this kind of my lower limit on the amount of class sizes because otherwise then I have to increase the cost per person. And so that was always a juggle. That is Mm. eventually why I moved away from running classes with kids is because there's a cap on how many you can fit to make it. Friendly, yeah, sensory friendly. Mm. And so in terms of business model then, you had to move away from those workshops, even though they are your unicorn bit. So how did you make it profitable? So then I started going into schools. And again, I got to a point where schools, that was capped to. Schools have a certain amount of budget that they can spend on incursions, on people coming in and running stuff. And that, again, wasn't, it wasn't going to be a sustainable model. So that's where I moved into this new space, which is what I do mostly now, mostly I connect with corporates and entities that, you know, engineering firms and groups that have science in their everyday functioning that want to tap into education. So they come to me and they say, hey, can you help us get into school so that we can, we can be involved in education somehow? You know, they're corporates. They got no idea what they're doing in education. So I bridge that gap. I create the program. I deliver it on their behalf and it's free for the school. So the schools are signing up, they're not paying, the corporates are paying the bills. It's this cross between education, especially public schools, especially in the West, which is why I'm where I am. Um, Mm. There is no funding. There is no very little resource support. There is very little training. There is very little. um, The teachers are at capacity, man. The teachers, Mm. they, they don't have time. They don't have money. They don't have support. And this is kind of bridges that gap. So this is the niche that I'm in now. Yeah, right. So you really bridged the passion bit yep. and the people who need it, but went where the money is, which is incorporate. Yep. Very brilliant. How did you devise that? Was It was actually one of the parents that used to bring their kids to the science classes worked in an engineering group and they wanted to create an education program, a school's engagement program. So he came to me and he said, hey, this is what we want to do. We don't know where to, we don't know how to do it. We don't know where to start. And we don't have the connection with the schools. You have that connection. Can you help us? And that was the first program I made. And that's been going for five or six years. And that has now by word of mouth, I'm doing about six or seven of them. Yeah, right. And going back to the five-year plan, right? That's not something that you could have done if you would have gone in. 100%. 100%. So sometimes you just have to go into the path and see what comes in. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that would be a good advice yep. for anyone. 
And then the last thing I want to go on, I'd like to talk about visibility and awards. So you, you said that you're doing mainly advertising through social media, and that's not ads, that is more just your social posting. So not real marketing, but very fruitful. So that's fantastic to hear. But then you've also been named in Financial Review 100 Most Influential Women in 2018. How did that come about and what impact did it have? Uh, somebody that worked closely with me uh, put me forward for that, which was amazing. It was an awards night up in Sydney and I went and it blew my mind, the people that I was sitting with, and they showed you know, a snippet on the 100 people that year that were doing spectacular things and change, sort of change-making things. I think that that tapped me into a little bit of a network and it also made me realise how important networking. So, yes, I don't do any ad, um, or any marketing, but I have some networks that I really, really keep in touch with because, again, I think it is, it's who you surround yourself with and the people that you can connect with and um, word of mouth. But, I, I mean, I think I will need marketing and advertising soon, but mm. it's just being recognised in that space, yeah, and I think staying as visible as possible and continuing to be seen, to be doing the things that really need doing and being vocal mm. about it. And, I mean, I get pushback sometimes. I don't really care. There is, mm. There's always going to be haters, yeah? Like it's just people are people. Let's dive in just a little bit of that. So how does that pushback come? People spontaneously come to you or is it when you pitch something and they just like, nah, or how does it coming? A bit of everything. I think on social media, there's a little bit because I'm quite vocal about challenges being a female in STEM. And there are a lot of males that just say, nah, nah, it's not that much harder. And, you know, maybe for them, they don't see it as that they haven't had the lived experience. And I'm okay. You're like, everyone's got a different experience. Yeah. But for me, it was more challenging and it was a choice between in the parenting stuff. And I, I wasn't willing to, you know, where I wanted to be in my family life. So social media is a very strange beast yeah like part of my success is the Dr. Laws yeah it's the person behind all of it and it really is for me that's my brand and personal stuff a lot of people are probably saying we're not here for this we're here for the science and I'm like that's okay it's my page if it doesn't interest you to hear the other stuff that's okay you don't have to follow or just scroll past yeah just scroll past <laughs> yeah so the, the comments on social media can be tough yeah they say never look at the comments, but unfortunately, when you run your business, you have to look at them. Yeah. yeah. And just small things like, um, you know, even just one of the workshops we did recently, we really, really try our best to be as inclusive as possible because, you know, it's lived experience for me. And every person that comes in, let us know if you need to, if you want to move to the side, if anything's overwhelming, if, um, if we can accommodate you in any way. But I try to keep my prices down by having, you know, there's a, there's me and then there's two others that run our workshops generally and everybody arrives at the same time. So it gets quite busy when that happens. And somebody, somebody put a Google review and just said, when we came in, nobody smiled at us and they pointed us over to the lab coats. And then they said, the science was great and the workshop was great and the scientist was very knowledgeable, but we will never go back and we will never recommend that because we didn't feel welcomed. And it's, it kills me because I reckon I know the exact moment it happened. It's because somebody else walked in with crutches and we went away to get chairs so that that person could have a seat at the front, you know, like move the tables around so it was the right height for the person with the chair and the crutches. But at that same moment, we missed somebody else. We missed making somebody else. Yeah. And it breaks my heart because they've got the space now to vocalise that on Google and it's big and it's bright and it's there for everyone to see. 
And people only leave negative comments, you know. Not so many people, people come up to me and say amazing things, but nobody writes it in a Google review. Yeah, it's hard to get that. So then, you know, like it's again, hey, everyone that has come to something and can you write it for me or can you put it down because the hater is going to hate and, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Do you give them a QR code on the moment for them to do on the moment? Because, like, people go home and that's the end of it. Yeah, I should. And I think that's the thing is the team that I'm with now recognize those opportunities. Yeah, and that, so they're like, this is what we could do for this and this is what we could do. And now we've got systems in place. We've got, you know, like we are, we're all on Asana and we're all connecting through that kind of Teams app and we've changed so much has happened in the last, you know, six months with this business and it's just getting so much better and so much more efficient and those kind of opportunities are being recognised and we'll keep getting there. But it's hard, it's hard. So that was an eight-year journey and lots of growth, lots of value proposition definition, pivot, change, learn from the feedback and personal growth and lots of sacrifice with your family, I hear. So very well done. It's an amazing journey you've just shared with us and thank you for the details. And so now you're a team of five? Four mostly, but a couple of facilitators. So probably five or six. But I, I mean, like, it has been an absolute journey, but I wouldn't change any of it because it's why we're where we are now and why we're making the impact that we're making. And it's huge. It is huge. That was Dr. Lorian Parker, the founder of Science Play Kids. I so wish there were Science Play Kids near me to take my kid to her workshop. But for now, that's for the kid in Melbourne. I love the story around her business model and evolution in Pivot. Now, everyone has been talking about Pivot lately because of the COVID-19 pandemic and the super digitalization of services that were face-to-face before that. But Loyan's Pivot was brilliant because it went from delivery of an extensive and hands-on workshop at a price point that was compatible with a parent's budget, which is not too much if you are to be a repeat customer, then changed to going to schools but they're also limited in their budget and delivery capacity, to then discovering that corporate actually are interested in showcasing their science work and participating in education in schools, but they don't have the network, the time or the expertise in education. So bingo, the schools and the kids get the benefit, but the funding comes from the corporate who gets their good deed and their good work out there. So it's a win-win-win-win really. And that goes back to your five-year plan. It's good to have a strategy and goals, right? But let's be real. I know that you don't know today what you will know tomorrow. And that's a five-year plan that is going to be obsolete within a year, probably, right? So let's adapt and be flexible. And of course, I hope that if you're a neurodivergent or a parent of a neurodivergent kid, that Lorian's story have you hopeful, but especially thoughtful of what you could be doing And look, that is not to deny the challenges that come with neurodivergence and it comes in all form and shape. We're not here to tell you that you should pretend that it's all good and why are you not a superhero leveraging your neurodivergence to save the world? None of that. Um, Especially not in a world where everything is normative. Totally understand that. But it's more about expanding the realm of what's possible with role models within the neurodivergent functioning And break up of the narrative that if you didn't thrive in the classroom and didn't achieve the academic success, it doesn't mean that you don't have the knowledge or the skills. It just meant, as Lauren said, that you weren't given the opportunity to access those. And then encouraging you to advocate for your needs 
and any adaptation that can help you or your kid being more productive. Don't wait for someone to propose it, just ask for it because people don't know. And make your case or find a space or a place with people who will hear that. I'm hopeful that employers and schools are becoming more cognizant of diversity and understand that small adjustments in work environment or schools and practices can go a long way. As Lauren said, they come when they need to come, they leave when they need to leave, they do however they need to do, and we get things done. Last ask for you out there. If someone comes in without the academic gold star, don't slam the door. But perhaps think twice about what drives them, because grit and motivation are the best predictor of success. And you can't teach grit. And if that's you, if you are missing the academic ranking, articulate your why so that the other person can see the light that you can bring. You can learn more about Lorian Parker and Science Plate Kid on their website. And Lorian, you will find me and every other STEM parents waiting for when you are ready to franchise elsewhere so that we can bring our kids to workshops like yours. Hey, thanks for listening. If you like the show, share it. Tune in for monthly episodes. You can follow multiple hats, visit my website. That's angelicgreco.com.au or follow me on LinkedIn or Twitter. Just search for Angelic Greco. I'd love to hear from you. If you want to tell me about your story, leave me a message.